Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman and I'm your host for today's interview and I'm speaking today with Paul Barba. Dr. Barba is an assistant professor of history at Bucknell University and is the author of the new book, Country of the Cursed and the Driven, Slavery and the Texas Borderlands, which came out with the University of Nebraska Press in 2022, and I'm very pleased to say just won both the W. Turrentine Jackson Prize and the David J. Weber Prize from the Western History Association. Welcome to the New Books Network, Paul, and congratulations on all the awards. Hey, thank you so much. Um, It's a pleasure to be here with you and your audience. Why don't we just start, as we always do on the New Books Network, by hearing a little bit about yourself. Tell us about your background, and tell us in particular how you became interested in history. All right. Well, first I'll say that I'm uh, recovering from a cold right now, a pretty nasty cold, so my, my voice may not be too pleasant to listen to. Um, but uh, in terms of my background, it's it's pretty boring as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I don't know that there's a whole lot to talk about. I uh, come from a, a rather large Mexican-American family from Southern California, uh, grew up in the San Fernando Valley. And I think in terms of uh, my, my broader development as someone invested in, interested in uh, history, you know, if, if you're anybody who's from Southern California or Los Angeles, uh, you're probably aware that it's a, an extremely diverse place racially, ethnically, culturally, um, also in terms of class, obviously. But um, it's also rather segregated. And um, I experienced this quite a bit firsthand growing up there in the 90s and early 2000s, um, especially in the context of, of schooling. And, you know, I went to these programs that were uh, definitely challenging and, and I'm grateful for, for being in these. They're called magnet programs. But uh, even within these schools, you have a lot of diversity and yet they're still extremely <laughs> segregated. And so, you know, witnessing the uh, uneven ways that uh, police and security would interact with student populations and and um, just seeing these iniquities in, in play on a day-to-day basement was always the basis was always uh, very apparent to me and so trying to understand that world trying to understand those power dynamics have uh, driven me quite a bit and and I didn't intend to go into history when I went to uh, to college at the University of California, Santa Barbara, but um, I've always appreciated history as a lens for understanding um, society today and and the way people behave and and interpret uh, their reality. So, anyhow, went to went to UC Santa Barbara, um, took some great classes. I majored in, in history eventually uh, once I started doing a lot of the hands-on stuff and you know, digging through documents on my own, looking at collections and realizing that as, as 
a 20 year old or 21 year old, whatever you, you do have some power in, in crafting those narratives. And I think that that was enlightening, but it was also very empowering to, to, to see that, to witness that and to, to appreciate that historical knowledge isn't something that's simply fixed, but, you know, as a matter of, of interpretation, rigorous interpretation. Um, so yeah, did that minored in black studies. Um, those classes really helped me to contextualize what I was learning in history. And then, um, somehow slipped into graduate school also at UC Santa Barbara. didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I, I had uh, no, yeah, I had no, no connection to grad school. You know, um, family members had, had gone to undergrad, undergrad like me, but um, I didn't know what I was in for, and and so I came in with no funding, foolishly went in without funding, and kind of just meandered for some time. And anyhow, I made it. I made it through, and and now I'm at Bucknell in Central Pennsylvania. So. I can't complain. Um, the the story that you told a minute ago um, is one that I hear a lot from historians. Where growing up, they see the world around them, you know, kind of shaped in a particular way, and they're perceiving it in a particular way. And this question of why is the world like this? Why is my life like this? Why are the people that are around me these particular people? This is something that I hear a refrain that I hear a lot from historians reflecting on sort of what drove them to to get into this field. And it sounds like you had a similar experience. Yeah, absolutely. And and what I really appreciate about the field of history is that I think at its heart, at its core, it's a philosophical endeavor, right? It's a reflection on human experience. And so we're we're tempted to take these teleological approaches where we want to know how we got to where we are today, and so we're always looking back to to figure out, you know, that narrative, that story. But at the same time, um, by casting a wide net, by looking at um, people from many different contexts, um, you begin to appreciate a lot of the nuance of human experience and, and also to think beyond the paradigms of today. So on the one hand, although like there's this impulse that, that I definitely rode into the field of understanding how we got to where we're at, I think the more that I've been in it, the more I've been able to appreciate that like we don't have to be here. We can we can move on to other things because humans have done it in different ways for a long time. And speaking of people in different contexts, I'm curious what brought you to the topic of this book. Um, why Texas and why in particular this question of slavery in Texas in the, the period of time that you cover here? Yeah, um, another not interesting story. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, as I said, I, I barely slipped into graduate school. Um, my initial advisor, he got really ill, so he wasn't around for the first couple of years, and I more or less just floated through um, my coursework, and I was somewhat aimless. Um, eventually, I, I teamed up with my mentor, Paul Spickard. He, uh, he, he called me the, the Mowgli of, of the department, he said, because I, um, in part because I, I look like Mowgli, but also because I was just raised by the wolves, right? Nobody was there to, to take care of me. Anyhow, um, I went in thinking that I was going to do a post-Civil War project, um, really fascinated with Reconstruction era 
in the United States um, as an undergrad. And so I came in hoping to do that. And I read this book by uh, Leslie Schwamm, Emancipation's Diaspora, and it's on reconstruction in the upper Midwest. And I found it super fascinating as a way to kind of take us into new questions and new concerns relative to the period of reconstruction. Um, and so I thought, you know what, I want to keep moving west. I want to I want to see if I can take the story of uh, the post-Civil War United States out west. And, and so I, I thought, you know what, I'm in California. It'd probably be easy to do research on California in this period. I took the idea to a professor and I was excited about it. And she shot me down and said, oh, there's nothing to be done on that topic. <laughs> so I ended up um, thinking, all right, well, if that's not going to work. And she was actually incorrect uh, about that. As much work has come out recently on reconstruction in, the, uh, you know, in California, in the far west. But anyhow, I, I, kept, I kept looking for, for other, uh, other possible case studies, if you will. And, and I knew Texas had some unique... Uh, demographics during this period and so I started exploring um, Texas during Reconstruction and as I did a lot of this preliminary research I realized I, I didn't know enough about the period before right especially if I'm concerned about slavery and the legacies of slavery I probably should get a better sense of of what uh, of what was going on prior to the Civil War if, if I'm going to be able to speak authoritatively about Reconstruction, and so I just started going backwards. And as historians tend to do, once you start going back in time, like you just keep going back, right, further and further, and, and and that's kind of what I did in my book to the point where I guess my narrative in chapter one starts off in like you know the beginning of the sixteenth century. So um, yeah, that's that's pretty much how how I, I got to. I realized that that no one had written a book that had fully you know or sought to to fully bring together all of these narratives of the different groups of people who would come to inhabit Texas by the mid nineteenth century. And so I thought, you know what? Let's see if I can uh, take a stab at it. And not only do you go further and further back in time, but uh, just hearing you tell that story, I was, I was laughing a little bit over here because you actually end the book at pretty much the time when you intended to start off the book with <laughs> with, with the end of the Civil War and, and Reconstruction. Um, yeah, exactly. So, you know, you, you just said a second ago that, you, you, you know, you're going further and further back in time in this book. And I want to get into some of the details of that history. But I'm wondering if, just to begin, you can give us maybe just a, a bit of an overview of Texas during the time period that you're covering, the 18th in, in kind of most of the 19th century. And I guess to maybe narrow this question down a bit, how and why were slavery and unfreedom, why were they so central to this place's history and the experience of the people who lived there? Yeah, um, that's a that's a tough question. You're asking me to distill 320 pages uh, into a few remarks, but I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, I think I th I think the short answer is colonialism, right? The convergence of colonialisms, if you will, and um, the extent to which violence undergirds these colonial systems. They all seem to come together in Texas. And, and I don't know that Texas is entirely unique in that way, but what's especially significant 
about Texas is that the geopolitics for centuries don't really allow for a single state to operate with the mandate or to operate as, you know, a hegemonic structure. And so I, I characterize Texas as a series of borderlands, right? And in, in these borderlands, which aren't ruled necessarily by any one group, but are continually contested by one another, the state has only limited influence. And instead, you have smaller communities that are usually structured by family, day-to-day concerns, other social mechanisms that are relatively informal. And these, um, and, and this, this borderlands context, I mean, for a number of reasons, but, but it, it essentially just fosters violent interactions. And it's important to keep in mind that there is a, there is a broader context to what's happening here, right? It's all just for whatever reason, coming together in this geographic region that eventually is known as Texas. And so slavery is a tradition that's imported by Spaniards, right, by Iberians. And this is what I, I track in, in the first chapter to give you a sense of how important slavery is for the expansion of Spanish empire. And you know, eventually Spaniards, Spanish colonists make their way to this broader Texas region. Um, But in doing so, they initiate a larger system of, of captivity, of capturing people, of trafficking in people. And it becomes uh, an important mechanism for dominion, for controlling resources, for controlling populations, or um, asserting a measure of, of power in this relatively unstable place. And so in the 19th century, um, by the time Anglo-American colonists make their way to Texas, they, they're bringing with them their own tradition of, of slavery or traditions of slavery, and um, they find a relatively comfortable place in Texas because people have been enslaving each other for, for so long at that point. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that early Spanish history because the the, the main narrative of the book picks up, picks up kind of in the early 18th century. But you also explain, as you said a second ago, that these practices of slavery and of, and of captivity, you know, at that moment in the 18th century, they're rooted in these much deeper practices that are emerging from Spanish uh, colonization of the regions. So, what did slavery and captivity look like under um, sort of 16th and 17th? 17th century Spanish, uh, the, the Spanish regime, and how do Spanish practices of slavery, how do they shape this very early Texas borderlands region? Yeah, so I think, you know, on the one hand, you have the so-called black legend of, of Spanish conquest, right? The brutality of, of Spaniards first um, conquering the Caribbean and then leapfrogging into the mainland of Mexico and then spreading outward from there. I think um, to an extent, we have to appreciate we have to appreciate that that violence and how they're enslaving local populations, indigenous populations, in order to exploit, to profit, to to get rich quick. And what that ends up doing is setting off a series of wars 
in the interior. Right? And by the, the 1540s, you have the um, so-called uh, Chichimeca Wars, which are the rather nomadic people who are resisting this violence actively. And, and they're doing a, a rather effective job of of um, undermining the, the Spanish colonial project. But what it effectively does is give um, these Spanish colonists rhetorical ammunition for further conquests, right? Because they are resisting the Christian, you know, what they call Christianization, um, they, they see them as, as unworthy of a, a gentle response. And so, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things where the brutality of Spanish colonization is always there, but you do have religious figures, religious institutions that are trying to quote unquote save these people. And so there's that, that tension that continues throughout the 16th century into the 17th century and definitely um, where I start my narrative or start the, the crux of my narrative in the 18th century. But um, the cycles of violence that Spanish colonists engulf indigenous populations in during the 16th century will continue to replicate themselves over and over again as the Spanish frontier moves northward. Um, even though you have, by the middle part of the, the 16th century, Spanish authorities who are questioning whether or not uh, the enslavement of native people is appropriate because you know you have to at least give them a chance to become Christians before you you brutalize them and so um, many of these Spanish colonists are able to justify what they're doing by saying look they're resisting us and so the only you know, proper response is to enslave them to um, to Christianize them through through bondage and and so that's part of the story that you have and I think that's extremely important context um, for understanding Spanish perceptions of what they're doing in Texas as this broader colonizing force. But you also have the mass importation of African people, right? And this happens, it, it, it almost coincides with the conquest of Mexico in the early part of the 16th century. So, and, and to be honest, I think this literature is only starting to, to really flower as we begin to appreciate the number of enslaved black people in, in central Mexico and how they've influenced uh, the history, but also society, culture, economic systems, etc. And um, you have these two, two systems of slavery, right? The, the enslavement of local indigenous people, but also the importation of African captives. And both um, exist side by side, but eventually they come together again in, in these different regions on the frontier, on the northern frontier of Mexico and in Texas. I, I try to to track that as best as I can, although the um, the documentary record is a little bit muted uh, when it comes to, to both of those systems at, at the same you know periods of time. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, is <laughs> anything else in terms of that, that early period? I think that... No, no. I, yeah. I think that that, that that covered it well. And um, I had another question about this early period. And one of the things that I thought you did remarkably well in this book is that this is not just a, a top-down story. It's not an abstract story either, that you really root a lot of the narrative that you tell in the experience, as much as, as is possible, in the experience of people who are experiencing this, this captivity. And... 
You said something interesting early in the book, um, sort of early, I believe this is in chapter two, you're, you're talking about Spain is beginning to colonize Texas in the kind of uh, middle decades of the 18th century. And you write that slavery tied disparate people together, really through the brutality of this system. Um, and I'm wondering how this was the case and, and kind of what you meant by this. And then just in a kind of a broader sense, what were some of the effects of slaving and, and the ex- what was the experience of slavery like for individuals in this early period? Yeah, I think when we're looking at the early 18th century, so Spanish missionaries try to, to get a foothold in Texas during the late 17th century um, missionaries venture out to Tocado territory, which is basically modern day East Texas. And um, they, ha- they have some flashes of, of, of uh, potential, if you will, but they bring soldiers with them <clears throat> and the soldiers are invested in, in exploiting the local population so they they begin to abuse some of the local women and they're quickly expelled and it's not until um french colonists begin to build in this this lower mississippi valley region that uh spanish officials are like oh wow we, we need to make sure that uh, we have something established in this texas region so they send uh colonists out there in the the 17 teens and during this period, um, it seems unlikely that they're going to have any success because they have this reputation for enslaving locals. And many of the local people who are residing in like this, the San Antonio region, um, they're aware of this. Like they know that Spaniards aren't to be trusted. And even though they're maybe a generation or two away from um, or distant from that real heavy slaving period um in the in the northern region uh of like nuevo leon for instance they still they still understand that this is a dangerous population and, and they should tread carefully if they're going to be um collaborating with them in any case these spanish authorities are able to convince the local populations that they'd be able to help them right and so it's it's ironic because of the the, the brutality of the spanish regime that local people would accept them and actually forge an alliance with them. But it only makes sense in the context of changing geopolitics within uh, indigenous Texas at the time. And at the time, we see somewhat of a rise of Eastern Apache people who are, for a number of reasons, um, asserting themselves definitely in the more western and northern parts of Texas, but even toward the eastern parts. And this may have something to do with the uh, budding French French presence in the east in Louisiana. But either way, they're becoming more dominant and they're starting to um, encroach upon the homelands of these native people in, in um, like the San Antonio region. <laughs> Of Texas, and so when Spanish when Spaniards come, they promise the locals. They say, "We will defend you. We will, you know, help you out in terms of providing uh, food and supplies." Right, and this is where the missions become important in that regard, because they're essentially just offering tribute to these local people, and um, they'll also defend them. And so right away, when they colonize or, or they establish these small communities in san antonio they um 
they begin to raid these Apache communities. And it's almost like instantaneously that they're enslaving um, Apaches and, and bringing them back to uh, their, their communities in San Antonio. Um, and surprisingly, many of these local indigenous people like Payayas, for instance, they are on board with this program, right? And, and they accept the violence of Spaniards to defend them against this Apache encroachment, or at least what they perceive as Apache encroachment. And so you have there, you know, one of the ways in which um, these people are coming together through the enslavement of of one another and and it just you know it, it works and I, I guess one other thing I'd add to that that uh, question is um, diplomacy and Ju- uh, Juliana Barr has done a wonderful job of spelling this out in in her book from well, already over a decade ago but uh, she talks about how uh, captives were were instrumental for facilitating diplomacy right so if you can capture somebody from another community you extract as much information and intel from them as possible and then send them off to to try to forge some sort of agreement between these communities um you were you were in pretty good shape at least until they went back and said, oh, well, they haven't released all of their captives, and so we should continue to fight. In any case, um, you know, th- it's, it's undeniable that this slaving violence is, is prominent in all of the relations between uh, the communities in, in Texas during the, the first half of the 18th century. And it's around the same time that another group begins to, to gain power in this region, and that's, of course, the, the Comanche. Can you tell us a bit about their history in the Texas borderlands region and how, with them as well, slavery is, is, is central to their ascendancy during this era? Yes, Comanches arrive as far as the documentary record um, can be trusted, uh, arrive in the, the, the broader Texas region during the 1740s. Um, we know at least as early as the 1740s there, they are beginning to emerge as a, as a significant geopolitical force. And they do so as slave raiders against Apache people. So it's around that same time that Apaches start looking to Spaniards for assistance because they're more concerned about their Comanche enemies than they are about their Spanish enemies. Although they are still, you know, they're, they're put in a terrible position where, you know, no, no decision is going to be really a good decision, but uh, they're more worried about this Comanche onslaught than they are about uh, Spanish violence, which is relatively weak when you compare it to what Comanches are doing. In any case, Comanches emerge more or less from the New Mexico sphere. And and I say that in, in terms of just the documentary record, right? They obviously have their, their own world that exists independent of it. But we see a lot of their activities through the lenses of these um, Spanish officials and, and observers. And what's important to, to keep in mind is that you have, throughout the 17th century, this trickle, if you will, or, or maybe it's more than a trickle, but you have uh, the spread of, of horses throughout the, um, the Southern Plains or you know, the American West. 
United States, what would eventually be the United States West. Um, and, and this, the horse is transformative for a lot of people who are able to integrate it effectively within their communities. And Comanches, by the end of the 17th century, have, and we're not exactly sure how, you know, you can look to uh, Comanche oral tradition for some details, but they have made horse technology one of the key um, fulcrums of of their their existence, their social existence, their their military prowess, their economic prowess, and perhaps uh, the Pueblo revolts from 1680 um, became a catalyst for the proliferation of horses uh, among their uh, community. But what we do know again is that they have adopted horses by the end of the 17th century, and now. They're using that horse technology to expand their their economic influence and their geopolitical influence. So, in New Mexico, pretty much from day one, around 1600, you have a, a, a slaving market that's established by Spaniards, and they do this more effectively than they do in the Texas context. You know, Juan de Oñate, he, um, he pretty much from day one makes it clear that that conquest through brutality and enslavement is going to be a part of the Spanish regime. And then later governors would uh, continue enslaving locals, purchasing locals, uh, exploiting them within New Mexico through the obrajes, the, the workshops and, and other things. They're also sending enslaved people south to uh, the heart of Mexico, to various mining communities, etc., etc. But the point is that you have a, a relatively vibrant slaving market in New Mexico and Comanches tap into it and they become one of the prominent slave traders of the region. They are almost immediately, at least in the documentary record, enslaving Apache communities in the New Mexico sphere. And as these Apache communities flee and head south and, and uh, eastward, Comanches follow them. And by the 1740s, they followed them all the way to Texas until it becomes clear that uh, this is going to create a new geopolitical crisis in um, the Texas sphere by the late 1750s. And earlier, you touched on the idea of, of kinship as being really important to understanding uh, slaving practices in the 18th century Texas borderlands. I'm wondering if you can explain this concept a bit and maybe talk a bit about how different forms of this idea of kinship, how it acted as a means of both exploitation and of adaptation to what is really a pretty violent world in uh, 18th century Texas. Well, if you recall my point about Texas being borderlands, where the state has only limited influence, um, instead we see how family becomes an important mechanism of social control, right? Of social organization, but definitely control and even dominion building. Um, family is one of the ways in which Spanish colonists are able to evade the dictates of the far-off state, right? They don't have to worry about violating Spanish law, which 
doesn't have that much direct influence on their lives. But they don't have to worry about it because they are enslaving these people and integrating them into their family as um, as uh, as their godchildren. I mean, it's typically uh, how it emerges in, in the record where these soldiers will go out, um, raid a community, bring people back to their community, and then take them to the local church, baptize them, and how they become um, bound to their, their household. And, and you'll see this <clears throat> through the, uh, the, the baptismal records, but you also see traces of it in just the, like the county records, if you will. I mean, they're not county records, but the governmental records of how uh, these, these enslaved people, usually children, usually women, they, um, they become bound to this Christian household and they're, they're not allowed to leave because it would be a violation of uh, the, their enslavers' Christian duties to, to return them to their, their heathen origins. Um, but I think on a practical level, and, and I try to, to keep that in mind, um, the Spanish colonies are really isolated. Like it... <laughs> It's difficult for them to just get by because of how alone they are on the frontier. And so they have to rely on local markets right, with indigenous people. And they're extremely short on labor. So you have these slave raids serving as opportunities to procure laborers for themselves, just to kind of just, you know, meek out a basic existence, you know, per their own paradigm. But uh, the family is useful because they can surveil them easily. They uh, have this ideological cover. It, it, uh, it fits within their broader patriarchal framework. And in some cases, you know, it's, it's an avenue toward reproductive labor. Right, where they're sexually exploiting these captive people and that allows them to create new people for their communities. And actually the point about reproductive labor is important for thinking about um, Comanche communities as they are integrating enslaved people. And this, this doesn't <clears throat> happen immediately, at least it, it doesn't seem that way from documentary uh, evidence. But by the end of the 18th century, and certainly into the 19th century, as women are more readily integrated into Comanche communities um, and, and made into wives, as the anthropological literature would, would say, they are uh, exploiting them for their, their reproductive labor. And you know, this is in the face of, of disease, mass disease, that is you know, epidemics that are wiping out a lot of their population. So it's important to integrate these people in order to sustain their population levels, at least to a degree. But again, the family is kind of the, the governing unit of society. It's, it's how they function. It's how they're brought together. And so um, it it just kind of makes sense. It's the, it's the easiest way to integrate these people uh, on a very practical level. Although, you know, the flip side is that it becomes ideologically convenient because, oh, these are my family now. It doesn't matter that I'm, I'm exploiting them, I'm violating them, I'm abusing them, but because they're considered family, you know, they, they fit within their societies. 
And this already very complex and very crowded region, um, it changes yet again in the early 19th century. Um, as you begin to see the colonization, maybe the, the, the recolonization of, of Texas by Anglos in this period. So how does this also alter the geopolitics of this borderlands? And in particular, how is it changing the nature of slavery in the region? Anglo-Americans start to arrive in the early 19th century um, slowly, you know, usually traders are those who are, are making their way out west to Texas. But then by the 1820s, you have these projects of colonization that are sanctioned by the state. Um, but it's worth, it's worth keeping in mind that, uh, that coloniz- that Anglo colonization only occurs or is only entertained by the Spanish government at first and then the Mexican government, because it happens as they're transitioning from Spanish rule to Mexican rule. Um, it only occurs because of indigenous people and how they're resisting Euro-American colonialism. And the the frontier, the northern frontier of Mexico is constantly giving Spanish authorities and then Mexican authorities headaches, right? They don't know how to people this region and how to limit the influence of these indigenous communities. So when Moses Austin and many others actually, he wasn't the first, but there are many folks who are are reaching out to the Spanish government for these colonial projects. But when Moses Austin says, look, I can bring families, I can bring Euro-American, civilized would be the word that they use, but I can bring Euro-American families out to this region to populate it and help you stifle this indigenous presence. Um, Spanish authorities like, you know what, this isn't a bad idea because they had been trying to do this for a century, right? And they had come up with all these schemes and and really none of them had, had been successful. But um, Austin is, is connected well enough and he, has, he, he gains some traction among the authorities, but then he dies. So his son, Stephen F. Austin, takes up his mantle and, um, and, and, continues, and continues this effort, which does get approval by Mexican authorities. And so when they arrive, it's it's not inappropriate to consider them part of Hispanic uh, colonialism. Like it, it, it's part of that regime. And, and Austin himself tries his best to, to make that a reality in the sense that he learns Spanish. He encourages his colonists to learn Spanish. He says that he's going to become Catholic and that other people should also become Catholic. Um, it, it's not successful in that regard, as we know, in the end. But even if we look at this early period in the 20s and into the 30s, um, Anglo colonists are embracing this Spanish model or Hispanic model of attacking, raiding, conquering native people. And they do this in, in conjunction, in some cases, with the um, Mexican locals. So in that regard, it, you know, the presence of, of Anglo colonists early on, it helps to facilitate Hispanic colonization or colonialism. But 
the other part of Anglo colonization is the mass importation of of African people, of black people. And this becomes um, a complicated issue for both the Anglo colonists and um, Mexican locals, Tejanos, as, as they're sometimes called, as well as Mexican officials, because you have within Mexico a pretty prominent anti-slavery movement. Um, they, you know, they, they're not happy about the fact that that uh, Austin and his people are bringing enslaved black people with them to Texas, and so that becomes a, a cons- you know an important. Um, wedge between the the communities, or at least between officials and the Anglo colonists, but um, they managed to to navigate this for for several years. Um, in some cases, they just ignore the concerns by by the Mexican government. In in other cases, they claim again that these black people are just part of their family. So you don't need to worry about um, you know, them as, as enslaved folks in the uh, traditional sense. In any case, um, their numbers overwhelm, overwhelm the, the Mexican system, right? As, as uh, Anglo colonization progresses from the 20s into the 30s, we're now talking about tens of thousands of people, while during the 18th century, you know, we're only talking about thousands, maybe several thousand people across the Spanish regime in Texas. Now we're talking about tens of thousands of people with thousands of enslaved black people among them. And so this really concerns um, a lot of the officials within Mexico. And eventually this leads to the, uh, the Texas rebellion, which ushers in an entirely different age of, of slavery, I would argue. And this, this, this arrival, this importation of all of these new people that you say, you know, it overwhelms this, this older system, this turns what had at one point been this very contested borderlands region into, I believe you say in the book, into an extension of the American South. And, you know, as we kind of get closer to the Civil War, as we reach the, the end point of your narrative, I'm wondering what is changing as Texas itself changes. Um, what does this mean for slavery and for enslaved people and for indigenous people in the region as well? Yeah, well, on the one hand, I don't think too much changes. Um, you still have this ethos of martial militarism um, that is prominent. Uh, and, and you have some Tejano people who embrace it right, who are on board with this, and this allows them to navigate the emerging Anglo system rather successfully. But anti-blackness becomes the governing paradigm of colonialism in, um, in the Texas sphere by the late 30s and into the 40s because it's so central to what... Anglo-American colonists are trying to build in Texas. And, and it's undeniable that Texas, especially by the 50s, is an extension of the cotton frontier in the South, right? When we're talking about capital investments, we're talking about the movement of people from the South, from the Deep South especially, to Texas, um, the 
forced removal of enslaved black people into Texas. I mean, the, the numbers really are astounding because as I said, in the 30s, we're talking about tens of thousands of people. Now we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. So they totally overwhelm this Texas region. They're investing in cotton. You start to see um, many more cotton plantations. Um, you'll see some uh, sugar plantations as well. But everybody is moving to Texas, at least those who are moving voluntarily, um, to recreate themselves as cotton growers, as those who could make a fortune, if you will, and, and escape debt, because many of them are also escaping debt um, out in the East and, you know, in the aftermath of these great panics of 37 and, and 39. But they come to Texas and they can start anew as they believe. But they bring this anti-black regime with them, which, you know, makes makes blackness uh, anathema to to freedom, some would argue even social existence. And um, this these anti-black impulses, which violence is, is one of the most important, um, they have all sorts of rever reverberating effects on this region. And um, as black people are resisting through fugitivity, through small-scale uprisings, etc., etc., uh, this only makes it more urgent for these Anglo-Americans to, to conquer, right? To make sure there are no weak points in this broader system, whether it be the southern border, right, the Rio Grande region, or even the northern or, or western parts where indigenous people are still more or less uh, maintaining their, their dominion in those regions. So um, this also lends itself to annihilationist campaigns by the Anglo regime against native locals, including Comanches who uh, fight mightily to, to limit their influence as they're continually pushing against their own frontier at the time. And then you end the story with uh, the coming of, of the American Civil War. And in some ways, the Civil War changes quite a bit, but there's important legacies from this you know, multi-century history that, that you tell here. So what does change with the end of at least legal slavery in Texas? And what are some things that, that stay the same? What lingers in the region even after the war itself? What are some of the legacies of this very long history of violence and of enslavement and of captivity in this region uh, after the war itself? Ooh, this is a tough question. I think, um, I think there are a lot of opportunities to, to, to do new research in light of some of the, the dynamics I illuminate in my book. But I, I would borrow from uh, the quote or a passage that I use to title my book and also frame some of the analysis. Uh, and, and so the, the title, Country of the Curse and the Driven, comes from a diary entry written by this Cherokee man, Elijah Hicks. And you know he, he considered himself to be a, a Christian man. He was anti-slavery, but he traveled um, as part of a broader U.S. diplomatic contingent in the in the mid 1840s to the the broader, or he traveled across the broader borderlands region, and and at one point in his diary he comments 
on how everybody's enslaved. He sees, uh, you know, Mexican children being enslaved and exchanged between uh, indigenous communities and also between indigenous communities and and, uh, and white communities. He sees um, Anglo children and women who are enslaved. He sees indigenous people who are enslaved, and he talks about how you know there's this broader context of of anti-black slavery in in the region. Um, and so he calls it a, a country of cursed and driven people. But anyhow, as part of uh, this entry in his diary, he, he's reflecting on on the future. And he, he says that, you know, there's a it's, it's a melody. Slavery is a melody without a cure. And I found that that sentence or that uh, description, that commentary to be profound as I was you know, reflecting on the period after the Civil War, because even though there is this strong federal presence that asserts itself in the latter part of 1865 and through the 60s, um, it's only effective to an extent to end slavery, or at least end these impulses that are driving slavery. And so I, I just, at the end, comment on how um, even though the military is doing its best to end slavery, at least legally, even though you have officials who go into Comancheria or at least force them to reservations. They still have enslaved people living among them. And um, it's almost impossible to fully divest these communities of these slaving impulses. And as we know, there are wave, wave after wave after wave of, of anti-black violence in Texas during Reconstruction and later. And I'd say that that's part of the legacy, right? These, these impulses of, of both anti-black violence and then also anti-native violence, they live on. They continue. Um, if we look at the convict leasing system in Texas, the proliferation of prisons, I mean, that's... That's all part of the story right here. And I, I don't spell it out in my book, but I think there are opportunities to see those connections transcending um, generations, if not even centuries. Uh, this stuff is, is deep, right? And it's, it's entangled. It's tough to, to really extricate ourselves from these larger historical dynamics. And then as we begin to wrap up here, I always like to get my guests to kind of flip, flip, flip the story around a little bit and think about, you know, their, a perspective on the book from that of, of a reader who has, has read their book and is kind of thinking back on it from a remove of maybe a year or maybe a couple years. What would you hope that that reader might remember or might take away from that book, thinking back on it from, from a couple years uh, after reading it? Maybe another way to put that is what's kind of one big takeaway that you hope someone would get away from this book understanding? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, I think one of my objectives undergirding the, the project, excuse me, I'm getting a little bit congested here. <laughs> um, it's okay, but talking a lot today. <laughs> <laughs> one of, yeah, so one of the main objectives was to, to, move away from the Texas exceptionalist mythology. Right? I, didn't, I didn't want to get bogged down in it, and I didn't want to use it as a foil. I didn't want it 
I just didn't want it to be there in the sense that, you know, when, when we think of Texas history, we think of the Alamo, we think of uh, these these brave white men going out and braving the frontier. We think about cowboys. We think about, uh, you know, that that kind of, of exceptional narrative, um, democracy and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I didn't. I didn't want I didn't want that to be a part of the book and and I also didn't want it to necessarily be the backdrop of my book and so if you readers may or may not discover this but I don't use the term the Alamo a single time in my narrative and I do that intentionally one to see if it was possible but also because I don't think it needs to be one of those you know, quintessential moments in, in, in Texas history. In fact, I think it's just part of a larger, um, a larger narrative that, you know, is, is, is useful for interpreting, um, century and a half of, of this history. So this is, this is moving beyond the myths. This is looking at history with all of its ugliness and and thinking, you know, where do we go from here? It's all complicated. It's all deeply embedded. It's all interwoven and entangled. So these myths of a triumphalist, glorious history are not just incorrect, but they're also extremely counterproductive. Um, I hope... I hope readers are eager to continue looking for more of this because even though I do think Texas is rather unique, uh, a lot of these processes are, are happening across the Americas, right? Across the United States, certainly, but even across the Americas broadly. And, and I, I, would, I would bet that you could find a lot of similar dynamics happening um, in very different regions, but still in, in very similar ways. So what people you know, may think is most important to understand Texas history actually might not be all that important at all. You're kind of pushing people to, to, to look elsewhere to understand the history of this region. Exactly. You said it better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then for, for my last question, um, I'm, I'm always curious about what my guests are working on next. Um, so I know that this book has not been out for very long, but I'm curious what uh, other projects you have sort of uh, currently boiling away over there. Yeah, um, there there are a few. I've I've got one that's got pretty good momentum um in toward the end of of country and the curse and the driven i talk a little bit about black fugitivity within comancheria and i've been trying to extend that story a bit not just within comancheria but broadly across uh native territory and and i think um this is something that has been identified by many scholars, right? Thinking about how black fugitives have often fled to native country for refuge, um, but it's been underanalyzed, been underexplored. There really isn't a narrative of this. So, uh, what I've been working on is just the broad history 
of black fugitivity in, in native territory. And, and currently, um, well, I, I did more research on this, like, you know, borderlands region, uh, Oklahoma, what will eventually become Oklahoma, um, even a little bit of New Mexico, that sort of thing. But uh, now I've been spending a lot of attention, uh, or I've been investing a lot of energy into the, the Southeast, um, thinking about South Carolina, for instance, uh, Virginia, North Carolina, Georgia, and realizing that oh, there's quite a bit there. And so I hope to, to, to continue um, this story of, of black fugitivity in, in native country, because I think it brings to our attention a lot of issues about sovereignty, for instance. And, and if we consider the literature on Maronage, which does highlight the ways in which these fugitive communities sought to recreate themselves and assert their own kind of sovereignty in, in these regions. Um, you know, we know that they're doing this in a native country, which is often understood in terms of sovereignty, right? They are, they exist as, as autonomous nations and um, the presence of, of these black fugitives, although on the one hand, could be very useful in countering the colonial regimes that are planted across North America. In in some ways, they, they become a challenge or new challenges for them. So, I think uh, I think I've got a compelling story here as well, and I, I look forward to, to continuing that investigation. It sounds like a great project, although I'll, I'll point out that that's only taking you further away from California, which is, you know, where you originally wanted to start working on. And now you're yeah. suddenly in South Carolina. You're going to have to go all the way around the world to make it all the way back. Probably, yeah. <laughs> I don't expect to get to California. I think it's gone. It's long gone. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Paul Barba is an assistant professor of history at Bucknell University. Uh, his new and award-winning, multi-time over award-winning book is Country of the Cursed and the Driven, Slave and the Texas Borderlands, which came out with the University of Nebraska Press in 2022. Thank you so much for joining me today, Paul. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Steve. Have a good one.